On June 13th, a new TV channel launched in the UK called GB News, dubbed by many as the UK's answer to America's Fox News. On the day it launched, ex-BBC journalist and presenter Andrew Neil, now GB News' anchor, said that the channel would aim to give a voice to those who felt sidelined or even silenced in our great national debates and promised that GB News will do news differently, covering the people's agenda, not the media's agenda. The message was clear. The UK's media is biased, representing the views of the metropolitan elites and sidelining those with a different opinion. However, what was promised was a non-biased news coverage, but simply news coverage with a different set of biases from most media outlets. So in an increasingly polarised political environment, is increasingly biased media all we can expect? Is this simply an honest acceptance of the fact that all journalists are biased? That, like all of us, they occupy a non-neutral perspective onto the world of politics? Or is this giving up too quickly on the value of impartiality when it comes to news coverage? Is there, in fact, a way for journalists to give us just the facts, free from value judgment and prejudice? And do worries of journalistic bias conceal some of the bigger problems with our media landscape, making us draw false equivalences between news organisations that embody very different journalistic standards? Welcome to The Philosopher and the News. I'm Alexis Papazoglu. I'm delighted to have as my guest this week, Joe Mazur. He is a senior lecturer in politics, philosophy and economics at Duke Chan University and a visitor at the LSE's Centre for Philosophy of the Natural and Social Sciences. He received his PhD from Harvard University and was then a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton's Centre for Human Values and at Stanford's Centre for Ethics and Society. Joe wrote a two-part blog post for the LSE called Media Impartiality, What, When and Why, that caught my attention, and so I was very pleased when he agreed to have this discussion with me. Joe has a very interesting and original proposal for how to achieve media impartiality, inspired by the adversarial trial model, so make sure you listen to the second part of our conversation when we come to discuss it. Joe Mazur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you wrote this um, two-part blog post for for the LSE called Media Impartiality, and this is going to be the topic we talk about today. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you about what you think is driving uh, the phenomenon of having media that is increasingly less and less impartial. Um, We have very partisan media at the moment that are offering sort of obviously non-impartial coverage of politics, uh, especially maybe in the last five years since the Brexit referendum here in the UK and um, the Trump sort of uh, election of 2016. What do you think is driving this uh, phenomenon? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I think it's really two key things. Um, one, I think, is more um, more straightforward, which is that it's become easier and easier 
um, with cable news and with the internet to provide ever more tailored coverage aimed at a very a very specific audience. Um, so you know before it just wasn't viable to have a, a news channel just devoted to just twenty percent of the population, but now that that's that's become increasingly possible. And and the other thing that I think is is a little bit more subtle, and this is especially true for um, newspapers is that it's become harder and harder to make money in the media. Uh, people are willing to pay for a physical newspaper that they can't get otherwise if they don't have, if don't actually pay for a subscription. But for the internet, people aren't really willing to pay for content very much. It's very hard to get them to pay for the kind of content that uh, a news source produces. And so I think the way to get people to, to open their wallets is to produce coverage that um, A, aligns with the audience's values and really uh, advances the audience's view of justice, and then B, also um, makes the audience feel good by telling them what they want to hear and things that sort of align with their existing views and that reduces cognitive dissonance, the the kind of experience that you have when somebody tells you something that you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. I think that really the second phenomenon I think is, is the more interesting one and I think is leading uh, a lot of news sources to try to be profitable by being less and less uh, impartial. Mm, interesting. So yeah, there being sort of uh, business model reasons behind behind this rather than only just political models, because you might think that you know politics was becoming increasingly polarized for for other reasons independently of media, and media is just sort of reflecting that. But as you point out, yeah, there's this sort of crisis of the business model of media uh, companies, whether they're newspapers or or TV channels that uh, might be pushing them in that direction. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. And I also think, I mean, your point is a, a third thing that is important to emphasize that um, politics is becoming increasingly polarized and that is affecting the media. And I think that the, that's partially um, due to ever greater sorting of people. People tend to live in like-minded communities, social media is creating these bubbles where people are less often exposed to opposing viewpoints. And that kind of polarization in mm-hmm. the public sphere is then also driving um, the polarization in the media. I think that that's exactly right. So given that our topic is going to be about media impartiality, you know, whether it's desirable, whether it's possible, and, and if it's possible, how to kind of achieve it, Let's just begin by defining what we mean by impartiality here. And in your in your blog posts, you you draw this uh, distinction between basic impartiality and strict impartiality. Can you tell us what those two versions are? Sure. Um, basic impartiality, I think, is something that we all sort of uh, would say when we talk about lack of impartiality. Right? It's something like um, explicit editorializing. Right? You know, Brexit is mm-hmm. a terrible idea. If the BBC said that in a news article, that would obviously not be impartial. There's also um, kind of just sexism, racism, and a kind of discrimination uh, certain against certain religious groups that violates uh, basic impartiality. <laughs> and then um, another obvious example is sort of beholdingness to certain interest groups uh, or powerful interests. So if an editor says, okay, ax that story because, um, you know, this politician doesn't like that story mm-hmm. and I need this politician to approve the owner's takeover of some uh, other news organization or something like that, that's an obvious uh, violation of impartiality also, mm-hmm. uh, basic impartiality. Strict strict impartiality is something more. It's, it's this idea that um, when a news source is strictly impartial, you can't tell 
what the journalist or the editor really thinks about the story in question, mm -hmm. right? You don't know where they stand politically on, on the topic. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about, about strict impartiality later on, but those are really, I think that that's an important distinction to start off with. Mm. Um, you know, this kind of very basic impartiality that most, n most news sources at least strive for, right? Um, versus strict impartiality. I think, I think one way of, of thinking about it is thinking about something like The Guardian, right? The Guardian certainly aims at basic impartiality, right? It does not, doesn't, it's not going to be racist or, or 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 biased in other ways, at least not intentionally. But it's not strictly impartial, right? If you read a Guardian story, you you generally know where the newspaper stands mm -hmm. politically on the issue that's in, in, in at stake. Same thing with Fox News. I don't want to sort of pick examples from one political side of the spectrum or another. So uh, you say that when it comes to the basic impartiality criteria, those should be sort of uncontroversial and that most media organizations should, you know, find it unproblematic to kind of stick to them. Um, and you then go on to focus most of your most of your article piece uh, on, on, you know, strict impartiality and how that's uh, to be achieved. But isn't it the case that there are actually many media outlets, many of them with very large audiences, that don't even meet this kind of minimal standard of uh, impartiality? So my question is perhaps you know a little bit unfair, but is there much point in you know raising concerns over our media fulfill this very very strict impartiality criteria of not being able to know where the author of an article stands politically or whether where he, they stand on this particular issue that they're covering? or even more broadly, where their publication stands on the kind of broad spectrum of politics, say, you know, are they on the left, the right, the centre, when perhaps, you know, the most problematic behaviours that we see are ones in uh, in the media landscape that don't even fulfil this very uh, kind of basic, as you say, criterion of impartiality. Sure, absolutely, and and I and I, I used the example of uh, Fox News before, but I should say that um, you know if you Google you know Fox News racism apology, you'll see um, several examples where they have to apologize for not meeting this kind of very basic requirement of, of impartiality. So certainly, mm -hmm. um, violations of of basic impartiality are a problem and a very serious one. Um, but I would say, um, you know, a few things. Uh, first, you know, I'll use this kind of somewhat strained analogy, but just because racist murders are a problem doesn't mean that we shouldn't worry about um, microaggressions, right? So, you know, clearly there's multiple problems in society, and it would be a mistake to just focus on the most serious kinds. Um, and second, I think, um, you know, maybe more importantly for my purposes, is that you don't need philosophers to tell you that violations of basic impartiality are bad, right? The role of philosophers is to really examine the more subtle problems in society and try mm -hmm. to understand them, try to um, try to provide solutions to them. And that's where I think studying strict impartiality is, is a contribution that philosophers can really make. And, and the third thing is we need to think about the importance of violations of strict impartiality. And I think that once we do that, and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, then I think the importance of even that uh, type of impartiality will become clearer. You say in your piece that strict impartiality also seems to better capture the type of um, even-handedness that many people want from their news stories. Now, what's the evidence for that? Because it seems like the most popular media outlets aren't really the ones that aim for strict impartiality, right? They're very openly uh, partisan in their coverage. In the UK, we have 
you know, the tabloid newspapers that have always been the ones with the greatest sales, very heavily editorialized. Uh, in the US, we have, as you mentioned, Fox News um, on the right, MSNBC on the left, which also, you know, wears its politics on, the sl- on its sleeve, as it were. So how do we know that most people want impartial news stories? If we if we judge by where they where they sort of flock to, it seems like they prefer the sort of media outlets that are are very impartial. Sorry, very partial. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so um, in my blog post, I I cite this Pew survey from thirty eight countries, and they ask the following question: It is blank for news organizations to favor one political party over another when reporting the news. And 20% filled the blank with sometimes and 75% filled the blank with never. And I guess there was another 5% that said always or some or I don't know. So the vast majority, so 75% says it is never acceptable for news organizations to favor one political party over another. Hmm. And I think um, even Fox News, if you remember, at least in the early days of Fox News, their slogan, if you remember, was fair and balanced. So even when a news source is not providing um, impartial coverage, they want to appear to provide impartial coverage. And I think that fundamentally people don't want to feel like as though they're um, getting uh, like a getting brainwashed or getting a really a very very one-sided perspective even if they are so when i talk to my dad who watches the F- uh, fox news a lot he says yeah i know that they're a little bit biased but they're a lot less biased than the mainstream media you know so and i and i think that many people want to believe that what they're getting is impartial news sources because you know people want to feel like they're not mm-hmm. being brainwashed you know that they're really um you know considering different sides etc right so maybe it is a it's a case of sort of self-deception to some extent though and right thinking that you know what we really want is you know the healthy the healthy food the the you know the what's good for us but actually what we really want deep down is is you know the chocolate cake or whatever so in this case the equivalent would be you know we we think we aspire to having uh, our news given to us by by impartial news stories but actually if we're left to our own devices what we're going to do is is go to you know the places where we know we're going to hear what what we already believe more or less i think that that's right i think that that's a that's a, a, a that, that's exactly right but i also think that um, for many people, if there was uh, a news source that they really felt did service to their viewpoint, even if it wasn't exactly, if it, even if it didn't always tell them what they wanted to hear, I think that a lot of people would actually mm-hmm. pay attention to that news source. I think really part of the problem is that people on the right don't feel like the mainstream media has is really impartial, and so they turn to these other news sources that are. Uh, not certainly not impartial either, but that they perceive to be uh, more impartial mm-hmm. than the news source that they've abandoned. I might have unfairly sort of characterized, you know, uh, media sources that are uh, sort of clearly on one side of the political spectrum or the other as sort of, you know, junk food <laughs> or what, what, <laughs> what we really kind of crave and what we uh, would would have if, um, you know, other concerns weren't weren't an issue. But you you accept uh, in your piece that you know partisan news sources actually play quite a valuable social role, and that we wouldn't really want all our news sources to be impartial in this strict way that you you define. You know, not really having any idea about the political identity of either the publication as a whole or the author uh, of a particular piece. 
Why is that? What social role do partisan news stories play in your in your view? Sure, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's really important um, uh, for there to be a diversity in the public sphere of different different viewpoints. So I think one thing is that even in, I, in an ideal, fairly ideal world, you know, sometimes the nonpartisan news source will fail to cover some particular aspect of an issue, and then the partisan news source can really step in and say, you know, actually. You really there's this really important issue that you're just not covering because because although you're supposed to be impartial, and as we'll talk about, that means giving some voice to different positions. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So that's number one. Number two, I think that you know impartial news sources because they have to give voice to multiple perspectives in certain ways, uh, as we'll talk about when impartiality is done right. In my view, they're not able to go into as much depth. On any particular perspective, and I think partisan news sources can play that role. They can go into mm-hmm. more depth on particular perspectives. And then finally, I think that uh, again, this is sort of a kind of non-ideal consideration, but mm-hmm. you know, often the big nonpartisan news sources rely on access to politicians or have other kinds of ties with powerful interests, and sometimes that leads them to. Um, not hold people in power accountable in the right kind of way, and so news sources on the opposite political side to the powerful party have an important role to play because they're not they're not going to be as beholden uh, to the you know politician or to the powerful person, and therefore they can they can play that kind of watchdog role in ways that a nonpartisan news source, although mm. they're supposed to, will sometimes fail to do. Mm. And let me ask you the the question of the, on the flip side: What do you think? the positive social role of nonpartisan news media would be and why should we uh, therefore try and uh, aspire to this very very strict criterion of of uh, strict impartiality as you as you see it yeah i mean i think i think there's there's a couple things to say and um so the first thing to say is that you know having relying only on partisan news sources uh, is a problem. And we're going to come back to this maybe a little bit later, but I think it's worth mentioning here. Because people don't, we're very busy. Uh, and some of us are news junkies, but the, the average person is not a news junkie. And they're not going to pay attention. They barely pay attention to one news source in any kind of depth. The expectation that they'll sort of like listen to The Guardian and then listen to a right-wing you know, news source, uh, and then sort of form an opinion is just unrealistic. So we need um, nonpartisan news sources for the majority of the people who are really gonna not going to pay attention to more than one news source. And the reason, and you might say, well, you know, what's the problem with just having people um, just go along with what an informed, smart journalist thinks, right? Mm-hmm. You know, why do we need um, the journalists to be nonpartisan. And one reason is preserving the wisdom of the crowds. So you might say, okay, well, you know, yeah, it would be great if the public opinion just sort of followed like the BBC reporter's opinion. But actually, there's a really interesting result in, in social choice theory that's um, been proven, you know, most famously by Condorcet that shows that actually, if you want to compare an expert to a large crowd, as long as certain conditions are met, um, namely the independence of each of the people in that crowd, and then also the unbiased nature of their judgments, and the fact that they have to be more than half right, they're more likely to be right than not. If each if each of the people in that crowd is just slightly more likely to be right than not, and they're independent, then basically the crowd, the majority of that crowd, is going to be way more reliable 
on a variety of topics than the expert is. Hmm. And so it, the problem with relying on the BBC reporter is that actually we do better as a society epistemically if we rely on the wisdom of the crowds. And I think, that, I think that's actually an absolutely key justification for democracy. It's not the only justification, but I think it's absolutely a key one. Mm. Can, I, can I pick you up on that? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So, so one of the presuppositions, as I understand it, is that the, the, the members of the crowd, as you say, have to be independent and, and not biased themselves. But what gives us reason to believe that that's the case? You know, people are, you know, people are biased and people have their own preconceptions. And often when it comes to certain issues, they're not fully independent because, you know, their own personal interests might be affected by you know one decision or the other when it comes to a public policy decision, say. So it isn't like these are totally neutral observers, right? They're, they're participants in the game and they also have biases. Yeah, I'm sorry, I misspoke. I misspoke. It's not, the, the participants don't have to be unbiased, actually. Um, the, the result just depends on them being more likely to get the answer right than not. So they can be, ver- they can be biased in various kinds of ways and still be just more just a little bit more likely to get the answer right than not but the 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 condition is independence that's what that's what i meant to say the it can't be that i just follow what you think right whenever i pace a political decision i follow what you think it has to, i have to be coming to my own independent judgment and you know various kinds of scholars have have sort of weakened these conditions in various kinds of ways and shown that the result still holds under certain conditions but um the the problem with uh, a biased uh, journalist is that the audience is no longer independent, right? Rather than sort of having a bunch of people each making an independent decision about what the best policy on X is, you have people following what the journalist thinks. And actually, it turns out that under certain conditions, at least, that's going to lead to a, a less, we're going to be right less often as a society in that kind of situation. So that's one reason why uh, strict impartiality mm. is important. Another one is just is democratic legitimacy, right? I mean, the, the point of democracies is for us to be self-governing in a certain kind of way. And if we're just constantly led by journalists, if journalists are really able to fundamentally shape public opinion, um, then I think that the way in which we're self-governing is really, uh, um, it's a thinner sense. It's not as attractive a sense. And then also, um, I think the legitimacy of political decisions really depends on people feeling like they've had a, they've had their perspective presented in the public sphere. So I think part of the problem recently with um, you know this, these kinds of um, uh, kinds of restrictions in the public sphere of Trump and other kinds of uh, right wing perspectives, some of which was justified, but I think that some of which went a little bit overboard, is that people on the right feel like their views are being suppressed. And even people who don't think that the election was physically stolen are, are starting to think that th- the democratic outcome is not legitimate because their perspective is not getting a hearing in the public sphere. And that's very dangerous for democratic legitimacy. And then I think the, the, other, um, the, other, pro- the other issue comes back to the first thing that you said uh, at the beginning of the interview, which is polarization. So even if our decisions are the same, in a, in a world with just a lot of partisan news sources and a, as opposed to a world mm-hmm. with just one 
um, non or a few nonpartisan news sources and then a few partisan news sources. There's a problem of polarization, right? If if half the population reads the Guardian, and the other population half the population reads the Daily Mail, right? I mean, well, that's not exactly equivalent, but a right wing news source. Um, yeah, the then yeah. the Telegraph, yeah, exactly. That's what I meant to say. Then you're going to end up people with people just really disagreeing and, and not being really able to cooperate with each other, not really being able to to see the other person on the other side as an interlocutor thinking about the common good, but instead they're going to increasingly see the person on the other side as an enemy, mm-hmm. as either stupid or evil, really, that those two things. Um, and I think that that's just deeply unhealthy for society. And so it's really important, although it's important for there to be partisan news sources, it's also really important for mm-hmm. the average person to really be engaging with nonpartisan, with impartial news sources that don't um, sort of push one agenda or another. Can I ask you a question that occurred to me when, again, you were talking about uh, the, the role of impartial media and preserving the wisdom of the crowns and the democratic legitimacy that that would give, um, you know, decisions that then the citizens go on to make. Do all those worries presuppose the idea that journalists are very influential in, in shaping public opinion, right? That That actually the media really do, like if someone reads a an article by a BBC journalist, and there is a social kind of perspective in the in in that report, even though it's not necessarily very explicit. The reader will just take that on board, and their 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 view of the world will be shaped by that. So, do we have any sort of empirical evidence that that people's worldviews really are shaped by what they read, or are we are we not giving the readers, as it were, or the viewers, enough credit to, you know? take in the information from even if it's a biased news source and then make their own judgment about whether, you know, this sounds right, this doesn't sound right, whether this is overly biased and so on. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that people just don't put enough time into becoming politically informed. So I think, you know, yes, the news junkies will go out and and sort of say, oh, that doesn't quite seem right to me. Let me just Google that and see what the other perspectives are. But the average person, I think, I don't think is going to do that. Um, And the other thing is, I think that, you know, problems are just becoming increasingly complex in society and do require an increasing amount of uh, scientific expertise in many cases. And and I just think because of that, I don't think that we can count as much on the average person sort of saying, hang on, you know, that doesn't seem quite right. Uh, I think we really need to think about, you know, the role of the journalist. As to how influential journalists are, um, I think it's difficult to say. I mean, you know, a lot of countries spend a lot of money trying to control the media. You know, a lot of resources in a lot of uh, a lot of mm-hmm. countries goes into that precisely that point. And I guess all these dictators could be making a mistake, right? It's, the media is just not that influential anyway. Um, but I think that they're onto something. And and I just see you know various friends who only consume mm-hmm. one side and, and relatives who only consume one side of new the news um, uh, media. I see how it influences their perspective. So kind of anecdotally, I think that mm. the, the type of media you watch actually has a lot of effect on, on your opinions. Um, but I'm not, I'm not an expert on the kind of the, the kind yeah. of um, you'd have to ask a political scientist or a media scholar that question. Yeah. It's an empirical question. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, even in democratic 
countries. There's a, otherwise, there would be a conundrum about why sort of billionaires want to control media companies when they're not always the most profitable mm, businesses. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, as as we said in the beginning, all these all these media companies are running into money problems. But it seems like, yeah. Um, very, very rich individuals still want to own uh, a, a newspaper or a TV channel or whatever that might be. Uh, and yeah, then questions arise about why. Yeah, I think part of it is vanity, but I, I think part of it is is uh, is, de- is definitely the belief that these things do matter. And I, and I think that they really do. I do think that they, that they mm. matter. Yeah. As always, this podcast is created in partnership with The Philosopher, the UK's longest running public philosophy journal. Check out the last couple of online events of The Philosopher for this season, including one with Michael Marder on his book Dump Philosophy, A Phenomenology of Devastation, and register for free at www.thephilosopher1923.org. So let's get to the the details about strict impartiality, since that's the, the main uh, topic of your of your um, two articles. And as you have already said, one way you can uh, understand strict impartiality is uh, along the lines of something that the LA Times, for example, includes in its ethical guidelines, uh, as, you, as you mentioned in your piece. And it says that a fair-minded reader, and you, and you also include, a, I think, a, a well-informed reader, should not be able to discern the private opinions of those who contribute to a news story's coverage or to infer that the newspaper is promoting any agenda. So when I read that as a sort of, you know, with my philosophy hat, as it were, on, a worry that I have is that this type of impartiality begins to sound a lot like objectivity. And this is a concept that, you know, philosophers have found very tricky. And we've come to to understand that seeing things objectively might presuppose this idea of viewing things from no one perspective, right? Um, viewing things from nowhere, to use that Thomas Nagel uh, phrase, uh, the view from nowhere. But that view from nowhere isn't really available to us humans, right? We always see things from some perspective. Uh, and so strict objectivity, as it were, isn't really available to us. And so and so perhaps strict impartiality isn't also uh, isn't really available to us either. You know, journalists all have perspectives on the material they are covering, and so what's the use in pretending that they don't? Are they always not going to fail in just not having, um, you know, stripping themselves from from their particular viewpoint? So, how do you respond to that kind of worry? Yeah, I think that that's a very uh, important worry, and I think a lot of journalists are responding by saying, "Look, this is a hopeless project, so let's just abandon." any kind of pretense of impartiality and let's just, you know, just, you know, advocate or, um, you know, just have just outright editorializing or, or even just kind of more subtle analytical journalism where the, where the, the journalist just makes the strongest case for her viewpoint possible while, you know, trying to be somewhat fair to the opposing perspective. So I think that there is this strain of saying this whole project mm-hmm. is just hopeless of impartiality. And so let's abandon the project altogether. I think that that's, not an unreasonable view, but I think that there's so much, as I've tried to argue, strict impartiality is so important in terms of the, preserving the wisdom of the crowds, preserving democratic legitimacy, and avoiding polarization, that it behooves us to really think about, as philosophers, whether there is a way out of this conundrum. 
And I think that there is a way. And we're going to get uh, we'll we'll get to my model in, in a second, but in, in, a, in a little while. But I think that there is a way. I, I hope that that your listeners will not abandon hope um, for for <laughs> strict impartiality because I think it's just too important. You know, at least at least we need to give it more of a try. Um, and I think the other thing I would say is that even if we don't get it exactly right, it's better to get close to it. Because I actually don't think that it's possible to get absolutely perfect, strict impartiality. Humans are just not, even with the best models, they're not going to mm. be applied correctly or, or you know, perfectly. But I think it's it's so important for society mm-hmm. that it's worth thinking about whether we can get to this to this um, to this ideal, and we'll talk more about how we can do that. Yeah. So that's the idea of using using impartiality or strict impartiality as a sort of, as we say in philosophy, a regulative ideal, right? Something to aspire to, even if it's impossible, and you can still sort of measure whether someone's getting closer to it or not, even if the absolute, as it were, uh, instantiation of it is is not possible. Yeah, but but I would add that I think it I, th- I think whether we take that view will depend on how plausible the norm is, right? I mean, if there's no way to even get close to it, then the right answer might well be to just abandon it and then just deal with the consequences and try to um, think of the system, have how to make the system as good as possible, given that strict impartiality is just an illusion or just completely hopeless. But I think that if that if we think of a better model for strict impartiality, then it becomes more plausible to see it as a regulative norm mm. that we should strive for. Let's talk first about the normal, the usual, as it were, model for uh, trying to achieve strict impartiality, which, as you explain in your article, is is the just the facts model. Now, the, the clue is in the title about what that is supposed to be, but can you tell us a little bit more about what this model is uh, supposed to achieve? Yeah, this model is sort of the traditional model um, of uh, impartiality. Uh, the journal is supposed to be kind of a the journalist is supposed to be kind of mirror onto nature, right? They're just supposed to give you the facts, mm-hmm. and usually it's the the facts are the kind of who, what, where, when, why, and how. Uh, and usually it's it's sort of done in a kind of what's known as the upside down pyramid form. You start with the most general, and then you go into the most specific, and then you also, as part of the just the facts model, you tell the audience what the different parties said. That's also an important part of the just the facts model. Mm-hmm. And the standard that's supposed to guide you is importance, right? How do you decide which facts to choose? Because there's an enormous number of facts mm-hmm. in any in any particular story. And you the answer is is straightforward. You choose or seemingly straightforward. You choose the facts that are most important and those are the ones that you include in your story. Yeah. Um and, and should I talk about the problems? Yeah, exactly. I was going to ask you about yeah, there's one there's one obvious problem that comes immediately, which is, you know, how do you choose what's important and what's not without any values to guide your decision? So yeah. Exactly. So do you want to tell us about yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean that's and, and I'm not I'm not this is not, not a new problem. I'm not the first one to um highlight the problem by any means. But you know, I think if you ask two people uh, about what is important about a story, you know, take take you know any story that's politically mm-hmm. loaded, right? You know, a story about Brexit or a story about, um, you know, the latest immigration crisis in the U.S., for example. You know, what is important about that story? What is important will depend on what you think is the right outcome in the story. You know, if you think that there should be stricter immigration controls, you're going to talk about, you know, the problems that 
uh, come along with immigration in certain contexts. You know, you know, some people argue that immigrants take jobs away from Americans or, you know, strain on public resources, etc. But if you think that uh, immigration should be immigration control should be loosened, then you'll focus on all the contributions that immigrants make to society, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what? facts are important about a particular story, it's going to just going to be inevitably tied up with your values and what you think is the right political outcome in, in that particular uh, context. Mm. So yeah, once once again, it seems to me wearing my sort of philosophy hat that, that there is something here that we can learn from from philosophy when it comes to this fact-value distinction. And we have the sort of continental tradition with its um, phenomenological philosophy that that tries to show that that distinction isn't quite as watertight as we might have thought. And even in analytic philosophy, the Anglo-American tradition, people like Hilary Putnam have uh, wrote papers on this, um, trying to show that there isn't really an easy way to strictly divide facts from values. So, for example, when we're describing things, say events or situations, even when we think we're using language that is merely descriptive, values always find a way to kind of creep in, evaluative terms find their way uh, into our descriptions. So a kind of a classic example is um, the term revolution when it comes to history, you know, describing an event as a revolution. It seems to be a descriptive term, but obviously there are a lot of evaluative connotations with that. Revolutions are generally seen as a positive thing and so on. So do you agree with this assessment that it's actually not that easy to separate the two? And if so, does that make the ambition of this impartial news coverage, at least along the lines of the just the facts model, um, just impossible? Absolutely. I mean, in, in, in a sense, I, I mean, I don't agree completely with that tradition, but I think that that tradition has a lot of truth to it. And I think you, the, the example uh, that comes to my mind is sort of the terrorist versus militant language that, you know, a lot of news sources struggle with. Mm-hmm. You know, do you just not use that term? Uh, how do you use that while still being uh it's achieving impartiality, etc. But I think you're absolutely, the point is very well taken, which is that even if you try to describe things in, in somewhat, um, you know, somewhat objective terms, it's just impossible because our values color every many, many, if not all of our descriptions. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm happy mm. to take that on board and to use that to sort of strengthen my criticism of just the, of the just the facts model. I think it, it strengthens the argument for thinking that the just the facts model is just a hopeless way of trying to achieve this kind of strict impartiality. Mm. So let's come to your proposal, which is very, very different from the just the facts model. And surprisingly, you suggest a model for impartial journalism that comes from the adversarial legal <laughs> tradition and the way that adversarial trials take place and the way that juries uh, reach a conclusion, namely by you know listening to the best possible arguments from each side of the case, but presented by the lawyers of the opposing sides who are you know far from being impartial they're they're zealous advocates of um, the position they're they're making their case for so can you explain to us how you thought of this analogy to begin with and how do you think this model can apply to the way that uh, media news outlets cover political news yeah i don't remember exactly how i first thought of the analogy it was a while ago but it strikes me that the problem is just very similar right i mean the problem of getting juries, right? This, these non-experts, these ordinary people 
to somehow come up with the right judgment in a very off what is sometimes very complex, sometimes also very scientifically complex cases about liability or about guilt or innocence. How do you do that, right? And also in a way that's fair to the parties, right? The other Mm -hmm. thing that's important about legal trials is that we really care that the parties see the outcome as legitimate, right? And, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel because in a sense that we face the same issues, same challenges in the political sphere. How do we get ordinary people to come up with the right answers on complex issues in a way that's fair to the different parties, right? And and so I just think that the analogy between the problems is just so striking that it's very it's worth mm-hmm. looking at the adversarial trial and how it solves the problem. You know, there actually is sort of some some legal systems rely on a judge to just impartially present the the, the evidence to the jury. But in the Anglo tradition and the American tradition, we don't do that. We instead stage a contest between two sides, each of which are arguing for their position and challenging the other position as best they can within some neutrally enforced set of rules. I don't remember exactly how I thought of the analogy, but it just strikes me that the problems are so similar and the work that's been done is so rich and there's such a tradition in trying to make trials better in various kinds of ways that it would be a mistake not to not to at least try to see if there's anything that we can glean from this tradition as we try to think about how to impartially present news to an audience. Mm. And can you tell us a bit about the mechanics of it? How do you imagine this working within a newspaper say or within a within a you know TV channel how do we how do we apply that model when it comes to journalism yeah there's there's actually like a bad example of of this it's not it's not a great example but it's a it's a it's um it's a it's not a it, it's it's a decent example so um i don't remember if you i don't know if you remember this controversy over the jeremy corbyn lip reading uh, controversy where some people thought it was stupid woman and some people thought it was stupid people do you remember that controversy oh right yes yeah that rings a bell yeah so um interestingly you know if you actually looked at the coverage of left-wing uh, media sources like the washington post and the daily mirror they focused on the controversy, right? The lip-reading experts can't agree, right? And then other other news sources, more right-wing sources, just focused on, you know, all basically all the lip-reading experts agree that he said he said stupid woman. But interestingly enough, the Daily Mirror, which I wouldn't mm. necessarily hold up as the kind of model in general, uh, actually sort of structured their coverage of the story in using the language of the of a trial. Interestingly enough, so they sort of said, you know, for the prosecution, and then they sort of had the uh, arguments that he said that Cor- that Corbin mouthed um, stupid woman, and then it has for the defense, and then it also listed you know the 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 uh, my, very small minority of experts who said he he said stupid people, uh, and they actually structured the argument in in a kind of print. Uh, I mean, it was online, but a, a, an article in print in a way that was structured on the basis of a, of a legal trial. So I think it is it is possible, and it doesn't have to be that blatant, right? You don't have to say for the prosecution, for the defense. You just have to, as, mm-hmm. the, as the journalist, as you're structuring the story, you sort of say, okay, you know, what are the basic facts um, that everybody can agree to? And I, that's sort of controversial. Um, you know, sometimes that there is there are basic facts that both sides can agree to, and sometimes um, there aren't. But what are the mm-hmm. basic facts that everybody can agree to? And then... You know, what would a zealous advocate for one side say? What would a zealous advocate for the other side say? And how would a zealous advocate for side A challenge the zealous advocate for side B? And how would the, the zealous advocate for side B challenge 
the arguments of the advocate for side A. And I think it is possible because you see it, you see it done uh, in certain cases. And TV is actually even more common if you actually have two experts on a TV show that are really challenging each other then you get close to this kind of model of, of strict impartiality, what I call the adversarial model of impartiality. Mm. So this model really does get around many of the problems that we discuss when it comes to the just the facts model, you know, this implausible idea that there exists an objective, unbiased perspective onto, you know, these pure facts out there in the world, free of values that somehow journalists will will try and, and, and occupy um, but in some ways, your model embraces, you know, embraces the fact that journalists are going to be biased and uh, asks media outlets to put forward stories from both sides of the world, you know, or more sides, depending on what the issue is, you know, presented by journalists as though they were advocates in a court making the case for their clients. And, and I assume that might mean, you know, each story having to be written by two separate journalists, otherwise maybe the sort of you know, the exercise of trying to occupy both, you know, the pros and cons in each story will become harder for people that already occupy uh, one of the two perspectives or already have sympathies in one or the other direction. One thing I would say about that is, is, first of all, to clarify, I do want within a story, within a single story, the journalist to take on the perspective of both sides. Mm. And one thing I would say for people who are skeptical is, if you think about a lawyer, um, two things to say about a lawyer. First of all, she has to be able to put aside her own views on a case and be able to put herself in the position of a zealous advocate for, for her client's innocence, for example, regardless of what she thinks of whether the client is innocent or not. And she does that by seeing herself as playing a broader social role. And the second thing I would say is that a good lawyer has to anticipate the arguments that the other side will make. Mm -hmm. If you have a, a defense lawyer worth her salt, she'll be able to put herself in the position of the other side and anticipate what the strongest arguments on the other side are going to be. So I think that if we can expect good lawyers to be able to do this, to be able to alternate perspectives, regardless mm -hmm. of their own particular view, I think that it's reasonable to expect journalists um, to do the same. I don't think journalists will like it. I think <laughs> it's not as much fun to... Um, to not be sort of advancing your view of the truth, you know, to an audience and really um, propagating that that view. Mm. I think journalists will sort of prefer, much prefer to sort of be able to shape the narrative, whether they admit it or not, to be able to shape the narrative based on what they think is important and what they think is the truth. But I think that if we philosophers make the case in a strong enough way that this kind of model of just the facts or even analytical journalism is just not working and is causing deep social problems, then I think that hopefully we'll be able to, um, you know, convince journalists, at least at least kind of uh, the BBC, uh, publicly funded um, uh, bodies where, where we can sort of, where we, th there's a kind of conscious effort to lay out guidelines. I think that we can make a difference in how, uh, how these things are presented. So since you mentioned the BBC, uh, let me ask you a question about a problem that jumps out uh, to me at least, which is the danger of this so-called both-sidism, right? And this is something that news outlets that aim quite explicitly for impartiality like the BBC uh, are often accused of, namely, you know, presenting two opposing viewpoints on an issue as being on equally plausible having equal value, being on an equal footing, 
For example, when it comes to climate change, having on a you know TV program both the climate scientists who might argue that you know climate change is man-made and real, and also have a think tank representative who argues that climate change is you know part of a left-wing agenda to destroy capitalism or whatever. So, isn't even the act of presenting the two sides of an argument as having equal footing, like in a court, problematic and misleading when it comes to news coverage? And shouldn't it be the job of journalists to, you know, vet and gatekeep a little bit rather than just channel the different opinions out there so that they give us a little bit of context as to, you know, what's actually more plausible and what's not? Yeah, I'm actually writing a follow-up uh, paper on it, this precise issue of, of expert testimony. And, and I'm using the example of climate change uh, as one, one of the examples. But I actually think that this is a, a deep mm. mistake that people are making in, in excluding the other side of the argument on this grounds. And I think the way, the way to think about it is, again, think about a trial. How do we solve this problem in a trial? And the answer is we solve it in two ways. So first of all, in an expert controversy, like a controversy about climate change, not everyone can just have a voice, right? If, if, it, if I you know, find some random think tank person who thinks it's a left-wing conspiracy, well, that person's not an expert in any kind of way that's recognized by courts, and that person would not be able to testify as an expert witness saying that climate change is not happening. But in the climate change case, there are actually people who, you know, very small minority, you know, something like 3%, or maybe even smaller than that, who are experts in at least some minimal sense that, you know, doubt the severity of climate change or doubt the anthropocentricity of climate change in various kinds of ways. And I think, you know, if you think about what a trial does is it lets the defense or the prosecution or whatever side, if they can find an expert who counts as an expert, they can, uh, for their position, that person gets to have their view presented. But then, you know, the the lawyer on the other side will challenge that expert. You know, well, they'll say, isn't it true that only 3% of, you know, only 1% of experts agree with your position? Isn't it true that you're not really a climate scientist? You're more of a geologist, you know, with a kind of, you know, you dabble mm -hmm. in climate science or something like that. You know, so I think that the way to respond to these problems when there really are experts on both sides, is to let the other side present, but then challenge it in the strongest way possible. And I think that that would lead um, people to have so much more confidence in the media than they do now. I think you know a lot of countries mm -hmm. are finding that you know despite the media just accepting climate change as truth for a long time, there's still lots of skepticism, and a lot of the skepticism is on people with people who no longer listen to the mainstream media. I think part of the reason that they don't listen to it is because, you know, they know that there are experts who don't who don't agree with the consensus, and those experts are not getting a voice. And so, I actually think it's a deep mistake to not let people have their experts that present their side of the of the debate have a voice. Actually, um, the way to uh, deal with it instead is to allow those experts to go on, but not to just have you know he said she said, but rather have. Mm the strongest challenge possible of both experts. And that includes sort of saying, well, isn't it true that only 1% of experts agree with you? Another objection I could, I could, I could raise um, if I was being mean, <laughs> maybe a little bit unfair, <laughs> would be to say that what you're proposing is basically a mini version of the media landscape as we already have it, right? So we already have what you suggest at a large scale, different media outlets making the case for their side in the strongest possible terms. And really what you want is 
because, as you say, you know, people who are not really into political news don't spend the time reading, you know, a variety of different news sources. What you want is basically for all that to be in one place, in one in one newspaper or in one article, um, maybe with some small added constraints, like, as you said, you know, uh, assessing out what the uncontroversial facts of a story uh, might be, although, you know, that's, <laughs> as you already hinted at, not always uh, that that obvious, right? What part of the problem we're facing at the moment is that we have this kind of politicization of, of facts uh, in, way, in ways that makes agreement on them quite quite difficult. So what would be your, your response to that kind of, you know, slightly harsh, as it were, objection? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you've actually already anticipated my response, which is that the problem with the, you know, having the Guardian and the Telegraph, you know, make the strongest arguments for their particular sides is precisely that very few people are going to read both, right? Um, you know, people mm. will, you know, many people will just read the Guardian and many people will just read the Telegraph. And so they won't get this kind of um, challenge of their viewpoint. And so that's the key reason to have it in the same place is, you know, for the average person to have somewhere to go where they really are getting both sides without requiring them to, you know, spend um, unrealistic amounts of time engaging with the news. They're not going to they're not going to do that. And a model that relies on the citizen to do that is asking too much of the citizen. It's not not too much in the kind of normative sense necessarily. Um, you know, in an ideal world, citizens would take their obligations of citizenship seriously and maybe would uh, engage with multiple news sources. But um, unrealistic in the kind of more positive sense of, you know, people have lives and they're not going to they're not going to spend, you know, 30 minutes every day, you know, 15 minutes on the right wing news source and, and 15 minutes on the left wing news source. Um, so we need to we need to find ways of of taking people's limited attention span as given and find ways of getting them to um, to adopt a balanced perspective on things. They kind of, not, not balanced in a kind of like, you know, 50% this, 50% that, but balanced in the sense of they've heard the strongest arguments on the different sides and the challenges to those arguments. Um, and then they can come to their own independent conclusion. And again, when you have a democracy, when you have a huge crowd doing that, you preserve the wisdom of the crowds and you get um, good po- – I mean, you're more likely to get good policy. Mm. Okay, one final nasty question in the spirit of this uh, adversarial trial <laughs> mode. Um, <laughs> you know, is there a chance that focusing on this question of strict impartiality uh, – that it's just a bit too academic and missing the point of the real problem with our media landscape today and, you know, places like the UK and the US at least. So isn't what we're really dealing with often something more akin to, you know, purposeful propaganda, the propagation of half-truths, of outright lies, with, you know, greater political goals in mind? And isn't there a danger in identifying the problem with contemporary media as being that of, you know, the lack of strict impartiality and the existence of journalistic bias that we just end up bundling together media organizations that are very different, right? One one can dismiss the New York Times just as much as Fox News by saying they're both politically biased. They both have an agenda, perhaps. But they're also clearly very different media organizations. They adhere to different journalistic standards and they present their material in different ways. So what do you say to that kind of objection? 
Yeah, I think that that's very fair. It's a very fair question. Uh, and I think that we, there is absolutely, I, I agree that the New York Times has a different uh, journalistic standards than Fox News and that we shouldn't group them together in certain respects. But I think that what I would say is that the reason that a lot of people have, uh, you know, go to Fox News uh, is because they feel like the more mainstream media that has these higher standards have has failed to to be impartial. And so I think if we sort of focus on, we sort of say, okay, we're not going to worry so much about the New York Times because they adhere to certain kind of factual norms. They're not going to sort of, they really check their sources. They really um, try to avoid kind of the kind of violations of basic impartiality that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. So we're not going to focus on the New York Times. Let's focus on the problem of Fox News. I think you will miss why Fox News is such a phenomenon. I mean, I, I can speak from personal experience because my dad is a an avid watcher of Fox News, and he wasn't always like that. Um, he was a Democrat before uh, before 9-11, and part of the reason that he started watching Fox News is that he felt like the mainstream media wasn't reporting on the th- threat of Islamic terrorism in the right kind of way or in an impartial way. And so I think that, you know, if we're worried about Fox News, and we're worried about these kind of more extreme, these kind of um, media forms that violate even basic impartiality, and that are really bad in terms of uh, strict impartiality. I think we need to really think about why people would turn to those news sources. And so it's a mistake to, to not think about the kind of violations of strict impartiality on the part of the more respectable news sources that really do a good job uh, in terms of vetting the sources. And I think that the, the other thing I would say is that one thing that I hope has come out of this conversation is that it's not enough to make sure that all of your facts are right, mm-hmm. that you've triple checked your sources and that you don't say anything untrue. Because again, the key problem or one key problem is not lies, although that is an important mm-hmm. problem, but rather it's a selection of facts. So you can have a news a news uh, paper that has the highest standards, even higher than the New York Times, in terms of what facts they print. They triple check their facts. They make sure they have corroboration for anything that they print. That's not going to solve the problem because people who feel like that news source is biased are not going to continue listening to it. And then they will turn to other news sources that just don't have those standards. And so, yeah, I think actually I would I would put, the, put it the other kind of way. We focus too much in academia, and in part that's because of, of <laughs> our own biases, but we focus too much in academia on the kind of blatant violations of journalistic norms. And not enough, I think, on the more subtle violations of journalistic norms um, as they should, they, as they should be practiced, that have led to the problem. Can I ask you, since um, this isn't a topic that philosophers often uh, investigate or, if, or often think about, what would be a book that you would recommend for sort of better understanding some of the topics that we've talked about today? Maybe not just in terms of the nature of news, but in terms of you know the value of impartiality and how that connects to all sorts of other political values. Yeah, I think what I, first thing I would say is that there's uh, there's a deep problem in philosophy, which is that um, with the exception of a couple of topics like invi- the environment, uh, immigration, and a couple of other kind of uh, t- major topics, uh, applied political philosophy is generally relegated to 
um, it's kind of like the the black sheep of the philosophy world, right? People are really interested kind of in mm -hmm. fundamental questions. And I think that it's not that the work isn't being done, but it's not done by, you know, in, in the top departments. And that doesn't mean that there isn't good work done out there, but it, it does mean that it doesn't get the kind of attention that it it deserves mm -hmm. and that it needs. Mm -hmm. So I think I, I don't want to recommend a media ethics book, not because I don't think that there's any good ones out there, but because I think that there's a lot more that needs to be done in this area. Instead, what I would recommend to your listeners is a book called um, Stealth Democracy by John Hibbing and Elizabeth Thies Morse. What it will give you is an understanding of the psychology of the average person, because your readers will tend to be politically, sorry, not your readers, your listeners uh, will tend to be politically engaged. They're not likely to sort of know or, or to have a good understanding of the psychology of the average person, the person who's not that interested in politics. And I think to understand the problem of news and the problem of how to present news in, in, a, in the right way, I think it's really important to understand how the average person the nonpartisan person um, sees politics. And this book, Self-Democracy, which actually surveys and does focus groups of average people and how they understand politics, I think will give uh, your listeners a really good understanding of, of you know, the nonpartisan middle. You know, not the people who are sort of in the middle because they really see both sides and really understand, you know, they read The Guardian and The Telegraph, but rather the person who doesn't really engage with the news very much at all and is not particularly political, politically informed. How do they see politics and how do we design a type of uh, news coverage that leads them to uh, be most likely to determine the truth of the matter? Joe Mazur. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Alexis, for having me. I really appreciate it. I think it's a it's a really interesting topic. And uh, yeah, I really had a, a great time talking about it. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Philosopher in the News. If you enjoyed listening, I have a favor to ask you. Please take a minute and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help keep our audience growing and make it easier for us to book the best guests for our show. Our episodes air every other Tuesday. I'm Alexis Papazoglu, and this was The Philosopher in the News. Speak again soon.